Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agents are Kevin Kaufman and Fred Weaver with Keller Williams Realty in Tempe, Arizona. Last year, they closed 382 transactions with a total sales volume of $79 million. Their average sales price was $206,000, of which 51% were buyers and 49% were sellers. They have a 53-member team, 35 sales agents, 4 regional sales managers, 4 transaction coordinators, 2 listing coordinators, 4 assistants, 1 director of administration, one director of operations, and two team owners. Kevin Kaufman and Fred Weaver are the team leaders of Group 4610. Kevin's been an agent for eight years and Fred for 11 years. Their expansion team works eight markets in four states. In this call, Kevin and Fred talk about succeeding in a recession by becoming experts at short sales, building a seventh-level team that worked and then failed jumping back into the business to list and sell while rebuilding from the ground up, growth through a multi-state hub-and-spoke expansion team, what happens in the hub main office, how they find agents to work the expansion offices, focusing on the three main lead generators of their sales agents, sphere of influence, prospecting, and open houses, training and accountability, Leverage through delegation. The three different referral sources, single agent, partners, and referral companies. Creating an interdependent lead generation model. Their goal to have 500 expansion partners. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Kevin and Fred. Thanks for having us. This is Fred. Uh, Very excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on. Hey, guys. It's great to have you here. Before we get into what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Fred, let's go ahead and start with you. Yeah, certainly. Um, I graduated college from Arizona State University here in Tempe, Arizona in 2003. While I was in school, I uh, began working for Washington Mutual Bank. My dad had always been in the mortgage business mortgage banking side of the business for many, many years. And so while I was in college, I grabbed a job at the same place that he was uh, employed. He was a regional sales manager, a regional underwriting manager, I should say, for Washington Mutual. And uh, so I grabbed a job and my first, I guess, if you will, taste of the mortgage real estate industry was 
this was back in 2003. So Washington Mutual had a couple different computers and on one system, they would enter a loan application and then they would have people such as myself who were literally data entry people and we would enter the loan apps into another system. So you got to love technology in 2003, their systems didn't talk to each other. So they hired a guy like me to come in and uh, help out. So I didn't know anything about mortgages or real estate, but you know, you look at enough loan applications, you, you begin to start understanding some things as far as credit and income and loan to values and, you know, ownership type of properties, et cetera. I eventually moved into uh, working for the uh, rate lock desk at Washington Mutual. I actually oversaw and ran their rate lock desk there at WAMU. My role was uh, we would receive rate lock sheets that came in from mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers that did business with Washington Mutual. And sometimes they would uh, have their math correctly. And when they didn't, uh, this 20-some-year-old little punk kid named Fred Weaver would call them up or email them and tell them they should really learn how to, how to do their pricing correctly on the rate lock sheets. So, uh, you know, in the mortgage business, when you, you know, lock in a refinance or a purchase, you got to lock in your interest rate at a certain time and there's different pricing add-ons and, and things like that to get done. So that was my first experience with real estate. And actually, while I worked for Washington Mutual, a gentleman that taught one of the classes that I attended at Washington Mutual, his name was Mark. He kind of took me under his wing. Him and I went and had lunch one day and just kind of hit it off. And I, I learned from this guy, Mark that he had been investing in real estate for a couple of years and he had uh, purchased some of those Carlton sheets, no down payment, you know, cassette audio tapes back in the day, you know, the infomercials you'd maybe find overnight in the early 2000s. And so my first taste of real estate was learning all about what I would call creative real estate, no down payment. So lease options, lease purchases, subject to financing, uh, seller carrybacks, you know, all of that good stuff. I basically, you know, learned my initial real estate language and, and, and courses from Carlton Sheets and from Mark. And uh, within a couple of months of meeting Mark, I finally looked at him one day and I said, hey, man, why are you, why are you still working here at Washington Mutual? He had showed me a check that he, he had uh, done a creative real estate deal and made, I think, $23,000, And I was like, man, if you just did a couple of those a year, you know, you wouldn't need this job. And so anyway, long story short, um, his wife owned a mortgage broker shop. And so Mark and I decided to leave our jobs at Washington Mutual in May of 2004 and, and basically go out and, and, and work in real estate together. I, I became a loan officer and started working under his wife's mortgage broker shop. And uh, Mark and I were doing some investing and basically about six months into that relationship, maybe even three or four months in, I recognized that uh, Mark's wife had all these people that were coming to her to get qualified for loans to buy properties. And what was weird is they were coming to her before they found a real estate agent, which is just kind of backwards, but she had such a strong uh, sphere of influence in her community and in her church that people would come to her to get qualified. And then she'd hand them out to all these different realtors that she really had no deep relationship with. So I looked up and said, Hey, what if I went and got my real estate license, then I could go out and, you know, show these people houses and sell them houses. And, you know, we could do loans together and we could also sell the real estate. And so off I went and in 2004, went and got a real estate license. I think I hung my license in September or October of 2004 here in Arizona my first couple transactions were very sphere based and and then in 2005 my first full year in real estate i ended up closing over 30 houses just working on my own and i was just absolutely blessed with the with the opportunity of being able to work a lot of these people that mark and michelle had in their mortgage business in addition to my sphere and so my first taste of real estate was uh this is pretty easy it was all people i knew or people that were referred to me and and so that's really kind of how i got my my start into real estate 
to advance the, the story a little bit more on myself, uh, Mark and I were investing in real estate. We brought another partner into it. But to be honest, um, I call it investing. But looking back on it, we were really just a bunch of real estate speculators. We got away from the don't, no down payment stuff and we started investing in real estate in Phoenix in 05, 06, when everything seemed to go up and you couldn't make any wrong decisions. And I quickly learned within a matter of a couple of years that real estate does go down and that I didn't really know what I was doing. And turns out I had to learn some really tough, hard lessons. So I made a lot of money on paper, but didn't have anything to show for it when, uh, when those assets went down in value. So anyway, I found myself in 2007 basically sitting there going, what the heck do I do? We had all these properties that had mortgages on them. We couldn't sell any of them. We were over encumbered. We owed more against them than they were worth. And I had all these other people around us that we had kind of taught and trained how to also invest in real estate. So not only did we screw up, but we taught other people how to screw up, which uh, I'm not necessarily proud of, but that's just the reality of the situation. So in 2007, I just was like, I think I'm going to have to get back into selling real estate um, as a as a real estate agent. In 05, I did a lot. 06 and 07, I didn't do very much real estate agent stuff. I did more investor stuff. And so 2007, I was like, I just got to make some money. And I was actually engaged at the time, getting ready to get married in the summer of 2007. And so here I was, July of 2007, and I, I started basically listing a bunch of people's homes that were underwater and, and that were uh, needed to do a short sale. And basically they needed to avoid foreclosure. But the funny thing was I knew about short sales. I had actually learned them through some of my early creative real estate stuff. But my, my uh, impression or my experience with a short sale was you basically took title to someone else's property who was, uh, you know, over encumbered. And then you uh, went and negotiated with the bank for a short payoff and then you sold it and made the difference. So when I started listing these houses at short sales, I listed about 10, 11, 12 houses in July of 2007. I was not listing them with the intention of buying them. I was listing them with the intention of, can I sell them as a real estate agent and somehow get paid? And it sounds funny to say, but I literally had no idea like how I would make a commission because I knew the sellers couldn't pay me. So my hope was that the bank would, would potentially pay my commission, but I didn't know that for sure. So I'll let, I'll let Kevin jump in and, and if you don't mind, kind of share how we crossed paths and when he got into real estate, and then we'll kind of bring our, our story, if you will, back together for you. That sounds great. Kevin, how did you get into real estate? Gosh, you know, I was, uh, man, I was searching. So I, I had gone back to school. I, I had worked for banks and uh, credit card companies actually running their dialer and working in their collection strategy departments and reporting departments and things like that. And I, you know, I just got to the point where I, I needed to work for myself. I just couldn't see myself working in a corporate environment or kind of working for the man, if you will. And so I started going back to school. I hadn't finished up college. And I was just going to a local community college here in the Phoenix area, and I met this guy, met this man who was teaching a class. The class, I think, was on business plans or, or something to that effect, because I knew I wanted to be my own boss. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And this was uh, 2004, 2005, and he blew my mind. The guy just one day said, we're not going to talk about uh, whatever was on the syllabus. We're, we're going to talk about money today and real estate. And he just sort of laid out a plan for how you can build wealth through real estate. And it just, it literally just blew my mind. I didn't know what to say. I just, I just thought to myself, this is what I've been looking for. And so I asked him uh, if he would, you know, have a cup of coffee with me, if I could buy a breakfast or whatever. And, and sure enough, he obliged. And we went and uh, we met at this coffee shop right by the school a couple of weeks later. 
And, you know, my dream was like, man, I just want to be just like this guy. And I want to be able to invest in real estate and make my living that way. And he kind of helped me put the brakes on and say, well, hold on a second. <laughs> Don't quit your job. You've got to build up funds. You've got to get started somewhere. And, you know, let me know I had a lot to learn. And what I found out about him is while he was a teacher at this community college, he was doing it more as a give back because he made his, all of his money through his business, small businesses and real estate. He was accredited through the Rich Dad Poor uh, Company to teach his class. So he, what I found out is he actually taught another class at the, at the college that was based on the ABCs of real estate investing and then another one on the other book, Cashflow Quadrant. And so for the next couple of semesters, I took any class that he was teaching and basically just learned everything I could from him and realized at a certain point, I said, you know, if I'm going to keep working but I want to be in real estate or at least a real estate investor, something to do with real estate. Why don't I just work in real estate? Truthfully, I had no idea what it was like to be a real estate agent. I didn't know the first thing about being a real estate agent was like, except that I'd, I purchased one house and my agent was actually a friend of mine and I knew that he liked it. And so I just decided I'm going to go get my real estate license. And, and I started, I did that. I started going down that path in late 2006 and it was hard because you know, I was working full time, going to school full time and trying to get a real estate license. And I eventually just got to a point where it's funny, I got engaged and a couple months later, I just got to the point, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't work, could not work for at the time I was working for GE Capital. I just, I couldn't work for them anymore. I could not do it. And so my fian- my then fiance and my wife, my wife and I agreed that, you know what, just quit, finish up getting your real estate license and just go for it. And so this was uh, right around the summer. It was like April, May of 2007. So I don't know what the market was like in your market, but in 2007, summer of 2007, it was, it was not pretty in the Phoenix area. In fact, I had friends trying to talk me out of getting a real estate license, telling me I had missed the opportunity. I should have been in five years earlier. And now I should just wait because now it's a bad idea and I'm going to go broke and, and hurt my family and all that stuff. And so if you know me, you know that all that did was tell me that I was doing the right thing and they didn't want to do it even more. And so sure enough, May of 2007, I, I jumped into school full time and kind of finished up the 90 hours or so that I had to uh, get my license and signed up, uh, went out and interviewed a ton of agents. Fred and I crossed paths a few years earlier because he and my wife and a couple other other friends kind of all grew up on the same street and had known each other from elementary school all the way up past college. And so I'd kind of gotten to know some of the, that group of people. And Fred and I hit it off because he had a uh, he had a background in real estate. And so one night we were at dinner, actually, the three of us, my, my wife, my now wife and Fred and I, and she left the table and it was awkward for her, you know, us meeting really for the first time and them having been friends for so long. And Fred uh, always say he was always critical of her boyfriends. And so she was a little worried because her and I were getting pretty serious and she left the table to go to the bathroom or something. And we just hit it off. We literally just kept talking about real estate. And so sort of became friends over that. So when I got into real estate back, you know, fast forward, go come back to present time in 2007, I'm getting into real estate. I called Fred and I said, Hey, listen, I'm getting my license. You know, you're really the only guy I really know who's had some success in this besides my other buddy. And I've already talked to him. You know, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, go talk to my broker. He was at century 21. And I went out and I interviewed, I don't know, seven or eight different brokerages and brokers. And I actually really liked the guy that Fred worked for who ran the Century 21 office. Good guy, kind of your old school broker, exactly what you would imagine in that old Century 21 model. 
you know, he was good, but I, I went to this Keller Williams office and I was blown away. And I just went, well, that's the place for me. It just speaks to me for what I want in my life and my business. And I remember telling Fred about it a couple of weeks later. I said, yeah, you know, I got my license and I, I went to this place called Keller Williams. Have you ever heard of them? And he's like, yeah, you know, I've heard of them. I said, well, they got this book that the, that the founder wrote called A Millionaire Real Estate Agent. I know you're really into systems. You might want to check this out. It's a pretty cool book. And so the next thing I know, he actually joined Keller Williams like a week later. I had kind of recruited him, if you will, to Keller Williams without even realizing it. I just, I knew he was into systems and I knew he was really getting back into real estate sales. He wanted to make that his, uh, you know, primary source of income again. And so here we are, summer of 2007, you know, Fred kind of already touched on it recently. He had taken a bunch of short sale listings. Now I'm a brand new agent. I, I luckily, my best friend who, who is now a surgeon who lives in Seattle was buying his first house when he was still in medical school here in the Phoenix area. He literally waited for me to get a license so, to buy a house, which was very nice of him to do. And I sold one other house. And then Fred came to me one day and told me about this thing called a short sale. And I, uh, I, I, I was like, well, what's that? So he kind of told me what it was. And the funny part was he said, you know, the thing though is I've only done this as an investor. I don't know if we can make any money. I don't know if the bank will pay us a commission. I don't know who would pay us, but I really need some help. I'm going to be going on my, on my honeymoon soon. And I, I could really use help or you interested in helping out. So I said, yes, because here I'm a brand new agent. I have nothing to do. And I don't know what I've gotten myself into. You know, I've quit my job six months before my wedding and, and going to go give it a go in real estate with uh, not nearly the savings account I should have had, you know, in hindsight at the time. And so I just said yes and ended up helping him out with a, with a few short sales. And I think my third transaction ever actually was a short sale listing that Fred took that I actually the, uh, negotiated the offer and then negotiated with the bank on the actual short sale payoff while he was in Bora Bora or wherever he took his honeymoon to. It was a deal I, I had negotiated and got approved. And so that was kind of my intro into real estate was jumping into this this pile of short sales after selling a couple houses to friends and, and then really going at it. And that's kind of where it was a few months later where, where mine and Fred's path sort of realigned and, and we started working together more formally a few months after that. Did you come together and form a team right away or did that progress over time? Yeah, great question. This is Fred. Um, we, uh, you know, it, it kind of haphazardly happened, if you will. We sat down and had some coffee or something in, in January of uh, 2008 and just got to talking and basically recognized that we were both working some short sales. We had, you know, kind of crossed, crossed over and Kevin had helped me out with some of my short sale listings. And what happened in that conversation is basically we were, I guess, venting uh, of how difficult it was working on short sales from home alone, getting basically beat up or hung up on by banks all day long or not having your calls returned or sitting on hold for 40 minutes waiting for somebody to tell you they couldn't help you. And so what we decided to do is we decided to rent an office in, in inside of our brokerage. And uh, basically we figured our mindset was at least if we're sitting in there together, we can help each other out. We can maybe coach each other on what's working and what's not working. It, it won't feel so uh, lonely, if you will, getting beat up at, at home negotiating short sales. And so we basically just said February 2008, first week of, of that of that month, we were going to share an office and split the cost of it. So we, here we are, we're sitting in an office for a month or so. And about a month in, uh, Kevin goes and, and takes this short sale class at, uh, at the brokerage. And the, uh, 
presenter of that class stands up in the front of the room and says, uh, you know, quote unquote, don't do short sales. They're bad for your business. So Kevin goes to actually learn, you know, a little bit more about short sales, attends a short sale class, and some guy tells him, don't do them. They're bad for the business. And so <laughs> comes back and tells me this story. And I'm like, you know, that's stupid. That's the, that's the dumbest thing I've heard. And I was like, you know, I've, I've taught some classes before and, you know, maybe we should just teach what we know. Like, why don't we just email all the people who have ever showed our listings and, and see, uh, you know, see if they're, if they're willing to show up to a class that we teach and if they might want to come hear what we're doing that's working. Cause obviously the other short sale education out there is terrible. And so in March of uh, 2008, we uh, scheduled our first class. We're a bunch of uh, kind of, you know, I don't really know how, how I would describe us other than to say we're, we're a little non-traditional, unconventional guys. So we're, we're both here in our flip-flops today. That's kind of our normal real estate gear. And uh, we like to have fun and make fun of ourselves because that's something I think is important in the real estate business to maintain sanity and stay in this business long-term. And so we named our class uh, Dick Vitale's Guide to Short Sales. It was uh, March Madness at the time. And so we figured we would uh, name it after uh, kind of college basketball. And, you know, with a title like that, you would, you would think nobody showed up, but actually about two people showed up to our first class. I think one of them we employed and the other one must have wandered in off the street. But anyway, we, we taught this little class and it, it went kind of well. And then we said, let's do that again. I bet we can get more people to come to it. And, you know, so before you knew it, I think our next class had 12 people in it. And then we taught again a couple of weeks later and we had, you know, 30 people in it or whatever. And, and what happened is, you know, there in March, April, 2008, we started teaching classes together. And then what happened is people would come in and they would want to learn more about short sales. And by the end of the class, they'd be like, you know, I have a, a seller that I think I'd like you to list their short sale and just pay me a referral fee. I don't want to do it. You guys sound like you're crazy enough to, to know what you're doing and figure this out. And, and so we kind of looked at each other and we're like, all right, now what are we supposed to do? We were just trying to share an office and help each other. But now we're like generating business kind of haphazardly uh, by teaching these classes. And so based out of necessity, if you will, we, uh, we just, we formed a team and, you know, our, our goal and, and mindset was not, Hey, let's go build a big business. We were, I mean, just to be flat out, you know, straight and not holding anything back. We were both broke and we were trying to survive. We were trying to prove to our, you know, we had both been newly married in 2007 and we were trying to prove to our respective wives that we could make it in real estate and that we weren't as crazy as they might've thought we were. And so we were just trying to survive. But what happened, we start teaching these classes, people start referring us short sale listings. And so we decided to form a team. And uh, before you knew it, you know, we were kind of off and running and our whole business was centered around short sales. And I'm sure we'll talk more and you'll ask us a lot more questions about a team. But I can tell you that in 2008, we didn't know anything compared to what we know today. We were, it was very much survival mentality and, and just trying to make it. If I understand correctly, that short sale concept the market was right. The economy there had fallen. In fact, real estate in Arizona, if I understand correctly, had fallen by 40, maybe even 50% in some areas. There were a lot of short sales going on. You, Your timing was perfect. And if I understand from your story, uh, from what I've heard before, it kind of blew up on you and you had a lot of business relatively quickly. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, I don't know the exact numbers in 08, but I can tell you at the peak of the, of the distressed market, uh, distressed sales in, in the Phoenix area uh, were actually 75 to 80% of all business. So, I mean, it literally was just, it, it became the dominant thing. You, you couldn't survive in real estate unless you had an REO account or you were willing to figure out how to do short sales. There just wasn't enough traditional real estate business people with equity. And uh, yeah, it really did blow up on us kind of quickly. I, we went from 
I had 11, 12, 13, you know, maybe listings, something like that. In February of 08, I had, most of them I had taken in July, as I shared with you, and they were short sales, so they hadn't yet closed. And Kevin had, you know, let's call it four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, listings. And so combined, we had maybe 20 listings at most, but then we started teaching these classes. And before you knew it, it seemed like overnight, it was probably 60 to 90 days, but it seemed like overnight, we jumped up to 45, 50 listings. And uh, again, all of them being short sales. And so here we are just overwhelmed with all this business. And, and the one thing that you should know about short sales, if you're listening to this call and have never, you know, this interview and have never done short sales before is that, you know, from the time you meet the seller to list their home to, you know, get it approved to closing it, it, it was on average six to nine months minimum back then. Sometimes it was longer than that. So here we are with all this potential business, potential money, but literally we closed 60 houses in 2008 and over 40 of those 60 closings happened in the fourth quarter. So from February of 08 up until August, September of 2008, we, we only closed a handful of houses. The vast majority of them started closing at the end of 2008. So it was a very rough uphill battle. There was a, there was a lot of moments of, oh my gosh, like, can we make it? Credit cards maxed out, you know, both in debt and, and just trying to survive. How big did the short sell business get? At its peak, how many transactions were you closing in a year? When our business was all predominantly short sales, our, our highest closing year was 219 sales um, in that stressed property market in 2012. And uh, in 2012 was kind of, I wouldn't say it's the last year of short sales by no means, but, you know, the market in 12 was maybe 30 to 40% distressed versus the 75 or 80, as I mentioned earlier. So we did 219 sales in 2012 and about 60 of those were buyers roughly in 2012 and about the other 150, you know, were, were listings. And of those 150 listings, I'd say all but maybe two of them were, uh, were short sales in 2012. And then the economy started to turn around there and your business model started to fall apart because short sales became a, a smaller and smaller percentage of the business. What did you all do at that point? So to, to kind of give you a little bit more of the 2012 story, we decided in early 2012 to take an opportunity outside of our real estate team. So we had a, a lead listing agent who had some support and we had a couple administrative transaction coordinators in early 12. And we had three or four people that worked on our buyers team and one person that led our buyers division. And so Kevin and I were, were in a way kind of jobless. We were running the team and overseeing it, but we didn't have you know, roles in the business in 2012 that required us to, to meet with buyers and sellers. And so we took an opportunity and we actually moved up to uh, Denver, Colorado for, uh, for about six months. The, uh, the move was never intended to be a, a, a full-time move, but we did expect that if this new opportunity worked out that we would split time between Denver and Phoenix. We probably, you know, we, we estimated being Denver, you know, five, six days a month type of thing. But we went up there for about five to six months and, uh, you know, got apartments up there and lived up in Denver and started working on this new opportunity. And meanwhile, our team in Phoenix is actually the ones, they were the ones that were closing out those 219 transactions, Kevin and I for half the year weren't even in the state of Arizona. You know, it, that opportunity was not for us. I don't think we need to go into too much detail there other than to say it was a big learning lesson for us. Number one, we're not very employable. We're not really good at, uh, you know, I don't know what gave us the impression we would be good employees again, but uh, it, it was just not a good fit for us. And so we came back to Arizona, let's call it roughly September of 2012. The market shifted, as you mentioned. We're back re-engaged in the business. And when I say re-engaged, we're back in the office. 
but we're not really sure what to do. Our, our people have been doing a great job. But what we quickly figured out is though our results were really good on the outside, 219 sales was our biggest year ever at that point. Though the results looked good on the outside, what was really happening on the inside of the business was there was some dissension among the team members. I think they resented us for being out of state and not being very good leaders. There was some resentment growing amongst the team. And so basically between September of 2012 and uh, the first week in December 2012, we witnessed and watched our entire sales team leave the business. Like literally our lead buyer's agent said, you know, I want another opportunity. I want to do listings. He tried that for a couple of weeks before saying, I'm, I'm going to go do this on my own. And then all of our buyer's agents followed him and, and left as well. And our lead listing agent had gotten burned out and she went and got into commercial real estate and left our team. And so um, no joke, like we're, December 2012, Kevin and I are left kind of staring at each other going, what the heck just happened here? We just had our best year ever. We weren't even here, which we thought was a kind of a cool thing, but we later, you know, recognized we were pretty terrible leaders and we had really good divisions and department heads, but we didn't have one or two people keeping it all together. And so we're looking at each other and we're like, hey, we've got 40 to 45,000 or so of outgoing expenses every month. And uh, we've got no salespeople left. Uh, we've got a handful of administrative people that are all still there. But it was kind of one of those like, oh, crap moments. What are you going to do? And so Kevin looked at me and I think he spoke first just because he, he didn't want to give me an option. But he looked at me and he goes, I guess I'll be the lead listing agent. I, I think that makes you the lead buyer's agent. And I said, OK. <laughs> and um, I mean, no joke, like it was a 30 second conversation. I know it sounds funny, but it, it, that's just exactly how it went down. And I said, all right, I guess we better figure out how to get some more business because you and I are the only two salespeople. So let's let's go rebuild this thing. Let's figure this out. And so the market shifted, our people are gone, um, you know, all, all these things that we've been doing were very short sale focused. And so 2013 began by making a few really critical, crucial, important decisions in our business. The first decision we, we had to make, which was a tough one and, and still doesn't sit well with us, but it was the first time and only time we've ever had to let a couple of administrative people go because we just didn't have anything for them to do. We didn't have enough salespeople for them to support. We didn't need four or five administrative people supporting Kevin and I. And so we had to let a couple of people go. Um, you know, we've let people go for performance reasons and things of that nature, but this is the first time we had to let people go from a business standpoint. We just couldn't afford to keep them around. We also looked and we said, you know what, we've done a really cruddy job of following up with all of our past clients. At the end of 2012, we had sold somewhere in the ballpark of six to 700 homes at that point in our career, and we had done a crappy job of following up with our past clients. Now, most of our past clients were short sell sellers, and some of them loved us and some of them didn't love us so much, but the reality is we hadn't done anything to stay in touch with them. We also realized that we had a ton of leads that as Kevin and I got in the business and started getting our hands dirty calling buyer and seller leads back, we realized that our team had done a very bad job and we had done a poor job of teaching our team how to properly follow up with the lead. And so a lot of the leads we had got, we might call them a couple times, we might try them for two, three, four weeks, but if that lead hadn't turned over and, and produced itself, turned itself into a client, we had basically given up on them and moved on. So what Kevin and I decided to do is we said, you know what? We don't really have a ton of money to spend on leads. We need to bring all our expenses back. This is time to kind of buckle down and, and turn the business around. So we literally turned all of our lead generation costs and expenses off, meaning we stopped spending money on generating more leads. 
We brought all of our administrative expenses down. We just cut every expense we could. And so in January of 2013, we had taken our expenses from 40 to $45,000 down to about 18,000. So we were proud of ourselves for really cutting back. But what we did in 2013 is, is we literally just went back in the business and we started following up with old leads that we had. Instead of trying to generate new ones, we just said, you know what, we have all these other leads that haven't produced anything. Let's just call them. Why spend more money on leads that we don't have the manpower to follow up with right now and we don't have the money to spend on? Why not just take all the old leads that are sitting around us and see what we can turn those into? And so we learned some really valuable lessons in early 2013 about cutting back expenses and, and really appreciating what you have, not disrespecting your database, meaning we got back in touch with our, our database in 2013, started talking to them again and trying to get business from them. And then we obviously started calling all those old leads. What happened in 2013 when you took that approach? Looking back on it, I'm very proud of the results that we created in 2013. But while it was going on, it, it was the toughest year in our real estate careers. I think, you know, it'd be easy to say 2008 was the toughest because we were trying to survive and just make money. But I think from a, from a pride standpoint and having to just suck it up, 2013 was probably the toughest year in real estate because here Kevin and I are getting back into the business, being willing to do things that we had thought we had kind of moved beyond. We had hired the right people we thought and we had done the right things. And so 2013, you know, we like to say that we had to relearn how to sell real estate. We had to learn how to sell real estate. And that sounds funny to go, well, you guys sold all these hundreds of homes. Well, yeah, we were really good at a specialty. We were really good at short sales. We figured that game out really, really well. We figured that process out. We knew how to negotiate, but we did not know how to sit down with a with a home seller who had equity and say this, the right scripts and the right dialogues and talk to them about what's important in their home selling process. I had never really worked with that many buyers in, in 2013. Here I am holding buyer consultations and showing properties, and it had almost been since probably 05, 06, 07 since I had done that. So end result of 2013 is I think we closed 130, 140 houses somewhere in that ballpark. But what, what it looked like and what it felt like is it was one of the toughest toughest moments in our career. We had some conversations where uh, it felt like every other week, but realistically, we probably had a couple of conversations for four or five, six months where there'd just be times during the week, Kevin and I would look at each other and one of us would say, uh, is there any other business that we could get into where we could make the kind of income we're used to making? And I mean, we, we were literally, I don't want to say we were on the brink of quitting, but had a better idea come along that we thought was plausible that we could carry out, we would have been on that train immediately. But what we recognized was real estate, we knew it. And even though it was hard and we were having to relearn how to do some different things we'd never done before, uh, the reality was that we stuck with it despite how hard it was and despite the desire and the urge to want to quit and give up and, you know, crawl into a hole, if you will, and not come out. So we triumphed. We made it through. We In the middle of 2013, we, we hired a buyer's agent that came alongside and started working with me. And uh, eventually I started um, not only working buyers, but also working a few sellers with Kevin. And so basically 2013 was just digging ourselves out of a hole and developing uh, an understanding and, and educating ourselves on how to work with traditional sellers. Actually, is a pretty fast conversion going from pretty much strictly short sales to traditional sales within one year. Your production did fall in half, but that's a pretty fast learning curve to, to make the switch. 
Now, you've continued on the traditional model, and you've, you've built that up. Let's move forward to today, and let's talk about how things went last year. Last year, how many homes did you sell? This is Kevin. We sold 382 homes total last year. That's between the greater Phoenix area. Uh, we had expanded into Denver in late 2014 and, and really just got our start in 2015 in Denver. And then uh, in late 2015 last year, we also expanded into Nashville. So the way that breaks out, I, there was probably six or seven homes sold in Nashville, hundred and I don't know, 105, 110 homes that we sold in Denver last year. And then uh, the lion's share, 260 or so homes sold here in the Phoenix area. Do you know what the volume was last year? If you add everything up, it was just over $79 million. Uh, about $30 million of that was in Denver, maybe a million and a half in Nashville, and then, and then the rest of that, the 50, would that be about, would that be about $50 million or so here in the Phoenix area. Would you mind disclosing what your GCI was last year? Just about 2.2 million, 2.1, 2.2 million total GCI for 2015. That's fantastic. You're talking about expansion, and we're going to come right back to expansion in just a minute. Before we get there, how many homes have you all sold in your career? Gosh, I, I got to be honest, I'd really have to go back and count. Um, it's probably right around 1,450, somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 homes for the total in our career. Where is Tempe, Arizona? If you're familiar with Phoenix, Arizona, it is directly to the east of Phoenix towards the southern part. So it, it is where Arizona State University is located. In fact, we could throw a rock from our office and get the uh, campus as that campus just grown so big, just right smack dab. It, it's about as central in the greater metro Phoenix area as you can be. Could you give us a quick description of your current real estate market? In Tempe, you've got... You know, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of student housing. So there's a, there is a lot of multifamily stuff here. A lot of new condo projects going up right now, too, as we speak, that are really on the higher side. It's kind of funny. But if we look at kind of the greater average, I mean, there are, gosh, there's about 27,000, almost 28,000 homes for sale on the market right now in the greater Phoenix area. Most agents you'll find, so even though we're centered in Tempe, Tempe's only about 11 miles in a radius. I mean, it's a very, it's a just an exact square. You're going to see the average sales price in the greater Metro Phoenix, and this would definitely include Tempe, somewhere around two hundred sixty-five dollars to $270,000. Our average, our personal team average isn't quite that high, but that, that's where the market is. You've mentioned Phoenix a lot. Sounds like you're really close to Phoenix. Do you work both markets, Tempe and Phoenix, or just Tempe? No, we, we work plenty of markets. So that includes Tempe, Phoenix, Glendale, Mesa, Gilbert, Chandler, Surprise. I mean, Scottsdale, you name it, Maricopa, Queen Creek, Santan Valley. I mean, it is, it is a wide area. There's been times, especially in the short sale day, Surprise, Arizona. I mean, where we would have listings that were literally 60, 70 miles apart. We probably still do today. If I put a I showed you a map of all of our listings that are in the MLS currently in the greater Phoenix area. There's some distance there. There's, there's no doubt some distance. You'd be surprised at the amount of space. And that, that's pretty normal. It, it's kind of the market norm here in, uh, in the Phoenix area. What is the name of your team? We're called Group 4610. That's the name of our team. We actually like to go by the Group 4610 network these days as we've expanded out past the Phoenix area. But Group 4610 is the name. 
what is that referencing? What does that name mean? So the 4610 itself comes from Isaiah 4610. And the story of that is, is I know Fred shared with you sort of how our, how our business really started, you know, it's really started to take off in 2008 and just started growing overnight. And the, the truth of the matter is one day uh, we needed off. We needed new signs. I looked at Fred and I said to him, Hey, listen, we need new signs. My name's not going to be on them. Should we go ahead and put your name on the sign? And he said, no, not a chance. So we said, okay, we better come up with a team name. And so we, we kind of thought about it. We had a good buddy. Fred mentioned his buddy, Mark, who had really, he, he, he's done a lot for both of us from a real estate perspective and just personal perspective. He was, we hung out with him a lot and he used to be a Spanish pastor and he had taken, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm actually holding it right now, the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. He had gone through that book and through the seven habits and just sort of just who he is as a person. He went and tied each one of those habits to which verse in the Bible he thought they, were, they came from. And uh, one of them is begin with the end in mind or think with the end in mind. And he had, he had tied that to Isaiah 4610. And that was something that just sort of resonated with Fred and I, especially back in the short sale day. Because, you know, when we would take on a client, we've really got to think about what's not just happening right now, but what are we going to be looking at in six months and in two or three years when they want to buy again? What, what are the long-term effects of this decision one way or the other? And so we really, it just resonated with us and we said, okay, that makes sense. Let, let's go with group. I, I think I said the word group 4610 or team 4610. And we just said, you know what? That's it right there. It's group 4610. So for us, it just summarizes one of the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey, which is, you know, thinking with the end in mind. Let's talk about your team. I think the best way to start today is to talk about the structure of your team. And you start to mention that, but you're in this expansion mode. You're, you're running with these expansion concepts. First of all, could you define what you believe expansion team means? Yeah, this is Fred. That's a great question. I guess if you don't mind, if I just kind of go back in our story a little bit, you know, we talked about 2013 turning things around. And in 2014, Kevin and I sort of looked at each other and we had this conversation about, all right, do we want to continue to keep things small where our profit margins are pretty high? We finally figured out this traditional real estate thing and, you know, we know how to do it. Or do we want to, you know, kind of go back on this path of growing our team and and taking some risks again and and getting big? You know, we eventually came to the conclusion that our, our mission that we had created for our real estate team in 2009 or 10 was to produce extraordinary results to influence people and impact lives. And, you know, we kind of looked at each other and eventually decided that if that's going to, if we're going to hold true to our mission, that's what we're really about, then we're going to have to grow and we're going to have to be willing to let the business get as big as the business wants to get. Not Fred and Kevin are going to have to be the drivers of everything, but we're going to have to be willing to let the business get as big as it wants to get. And so in the middle of 2014, we actually shifted our model fairly significantly. Previously, we had run sort of an administrative model that also had two different sales teams, one sales team that handled sellers, one sales team that handled buyers. And so in the middle of 14, we decided, it was actually in August of 14, and we decided, you know what, we're going to do away with this three system or three tier team. We're just going to have two departments. One department's going to be admin and the other department's going to be sales. And we're going to let the salespeople uh, work with both buyers and sellers. So we're not going to make call them buyers agents or call them listing agents. We're just going to let the people that we choose to hire on our team work either one. Also around the same time, 
Kevin and I attended a course that Keller Williams was offering called Expansion Systems Orientation. We had previously given some thought to expanding before Keller Williams had ever come out with these courses. And the, the real reason and the idea behind why we wanted to expand is that we wanted to increase our average sales price. We wanted to be able to sell more houses but make a significantly larger amount of money. In the Phoenix area, at one time when short sales were popular, our average purchase price was 114 at one time. And obviously last year it was a little bit above 200, but we wanted to basically be able to expand our presence, sell more houses in other areas, and, and ideally raise that purchase price. And so we went to this, this class, Expansion Systems Orientation, with the thought process in mind, how do we do that? And so your question is, you know, what is expansion? And, and our response to that would be expansion is simply taking your lead generation systems and your administrative systems, let's call that your model, right? You have some sort of model in place by which you generate leads and how you service them. And you have some sort of model in place by which you administratively handle all the details of the transaction and even things outside of a transaction. And so it's taking your model and it's expanding it into another territory. So basically to simplify expansion, expansion is, is leads, in expansion is administration. It's if, if I could go into Denver, Colorado as an example, and I could successfully generate real estate leads there, then what would stop me from being able to hire agents on the ground who have Colorado real estate licenses and let them work with the buyers and sellers using our training and our systems and how we handle business. And then I, if I could also then support those agents through administrative help, meaning transaction management, listing management, contract to close type duties. If I could support that, then essentially I, I could I could expand my real estate team, if you will. We could expand our real estate team into other markets. When you do these expansions, I assume that the administrative part of the puzzle is there at headquarters back in Tempe, Arizona, and that in your example of Denver, Colorado, you're just bringing in the sell side, the the sales folks, but not admin. Or are you putting admin in these expansion markets as well? Yeah, great question. So we view um, Phoenix or Tempe as basically our hub. It's uh, kind of think of like a hub and spoke model, if you will, which is sort of a business model, right? So every all the administrative functionality is, is here at the hub in Tempe, Arizona, and the hub supports over now over 35, almost 40 real estate sales agents across four different states. And so that support looks like helping with scheduling pictures and, and, you know, getting lockboxes on properties and putting them into the MLS and setting up showing services and handling contract to closing duties like scheduling inspections and negotiating repair requests and those sort of things. So all of that hub administrative support happens here in Tempe. And uh, we actually have in, in Tempe, we have people that have real estate licenses administratively to be able to support those agents. So we are actually doing license activity in those other states administratively because we have the licensed administrative folks here in Arizona. Did you say that your admin is licensed in multiple states? Yeah, that's correct. Now, not every single one of them, but as an example, transaction coordination, we've got some people that specialize in transaction coordination for Arizona. We've got some people that specialize in transaction coordination for Nevada, et cetera. So we've got people that are transaction coordinators. They don't sell real estate, but they help with the contract to closing details for our sales agents in other states. And they're able to do that because they're licensed in those other agent states, but they live and work here in Phoenix, Arizona. Let's go ahead and 
get a big picture, a broad stroke of who's doing what. So could you describe the people that are in your hub? Let's start with the admin that's in the hub. Who's there and what are they doing? Administratively, we have two what I would call very strong leaders in our administrative team. One of them is what we call our director of operations, and the other one is what we call our director of administration. And so our director of administration oversees all of the listing coordinators and the transaction coordinators and supports them, hires them, trains them, works with them, ensures that the product that we're delivering to the, to the client, the buyer or seller, remains at a high level. And our director of operations does a lot of our system support, communication, and technology that we use. That support is both tied to administration and sales, meaning that administration and sales have to function and communicate at a high level. And the director of operations is building out systems and constantly improving on our systems to to deliver a, a high level of service to our agents and our buyers and seller clients. So those are, the, those are the two leaders in our administrative team. And we also have four transaction coordinators. So we have four people who specialize in working with our buyer and seller clients from contract to close. So they handle everything from scheduling inspections to repair requests to earnest money deposits and signings and all sorts of things, making sure the lender's moving forward. So they do all the contract to close things. And those transaction coordinators, as I mentioned earlier, have licenses in different states. And then we have um, two people, I guess I would say we have three people that work in our listings department. And so they are, are charged with um, helping our seller clients getting their home on the market and essentially executing on the marketing plan that we promote and promise to our seller clients. So everything from staging to pictures to floor plans to photos to for sale signs, promoting them on website, marketing things, open house support, et cetera. So we've got three people that work in that department. And then we've got a handful of virtual assistants, people that work uh, actually overseas for us that do a lot of um, computer data input for us and, and help with some of our uh, data entry type functions on our team. So I think all in all, uh, we've got about, let's call it 11 to 12 people, uh, including our virtual assistants that uh, support um, our sales staff across four states. That's the hub. Tell us how many states you've gone out to. What markets have you expanded into? Yeah, so I'll do that kind of through the order of how they happened. It's probably the easiest way for me to remember them and give them to you. So obviously, we've been selling real estate here in Tempe, Phoenix area now since 2008 and myself since 2004. Um, and, and so our first expansion was into Denver, Colorado. And uh, so in 2000, in August 2014, we expanded into Denver and um, only sold like two houses in 2014 because we knew it would take a while to ramp something up and get something up to a high level. And we're happy to report that in 2015, we sold over 100 houses in, in Denver, Colorado. Then we, we actually went into Nashville, Tennessee next. Nashville, Tennessee kind of came about because we have a former employee who now lives in Nashville and wanted to get back and work with us. And so we decided to expand into Nashville with this former employee. And we've now surrounded her with uh, several other people on the ground there as well. And so that Nashville expansion happened in the middle of 2015. So this is our first, 2016 is our first full year, first 12-month year to uh, be working and selling real estate in Nashville. 
Our next expansion uh, after that was uh, was basically Colorado Springs. We decided to expand our presence from Denver and include Colorado Springs, which is about an hour to an hour and a half south of Denver. And so we've got a couple agents that work with us in Colorado Springs as, as kind of an extension, if you will, of our Denver sales team. And then we also went into uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, at the very end of 2015. Uh, those agents actually started training and working in our organization in January of 2016. So a lot of that is brand new. Actually, just closed our first house or two there in, in Nevada this month. So uh, a lot of that is, is just picking up and, and kicking up off the ground. And then additionally, we uh, expanded into Tucson, Arizona in January of this year, 2016. So we've now got four agents working with us in Tucson, which is about an hour and a half to two hours south of the Phoenix Tempe area. We also have put a couple of agents in Glendale, Arizona, which is about 40 minutes from uh, Tempe. It's actually my hometown, and it's an area that we currently service from Tempe, but uh, we wanted to have a couple agents that worked out there on that side of town so we could service them more appropriately and, and basically get a, a bigger market share, if you will, in the West Valley, the West part of Phoenix. So we've got Phoenix, Tucson. Uh, we have a couple offices in Vegas that we're in. We've got uh, Denver, Colorado Springs, and Nashville, Tennessee. So I believe that's uh, six major locations, if you will, kind of eight if you want to include the multiple offices in the greater Phoenix area and the greater Vegas area. How many sales agents you have in each of those markets, including the hub? We're at about 35 sales agents uh, combined. You know, it just depends on how I want to give them to you. So meaning that in some areas we have we have a lot of agents that are in training. We've actually hired over 20 agents already through this year, which is just a couple months into 2016. So we've got a lot of agents that are in training, finishing real estate school or finishing our training program before they're going to actually be live and, and able to work leads. But uh, currently in the organization, we've got about 30 to 32 people that are working with buyer and seller leads across four different states. And then we've got, you know, maybe another, let's call it eight or 10 that are in training that will probably be up and running in our organization here within the next 30 days or so. How many sales agents do you have in Tempe? So we've got uh, roughly uh, nine in Tempe. We've got uh, four that are starting in Glendale um, in the next two weeks. We've got four down in Tucson, Arizona. We have got uh, about four in Denver with one or two starting. We've got two in Colorado Springs with another one, maybe two starting in the next couple of weeks. In Las Vegas, we have got uh, seven agents in Las Vegas with another one or two that are starting in the next few weeks. And then Nashville, Tennessee, we've got uh, three agents with another three that are in training and should be starting within the next 30 or so days. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. People listening, I'm sure one of the questions they're going to have is, how are you finding these agents in these other markets when you're sitting in Arizona? How are you finding them in these other states? That's, uh, this is Kevin. That, that's a great question. And so I'll walk you through kind of the evolution of that, if you don't mind, because sure. we've done a few different, few different things. So when we first started the, the expansion and starting to look for other agents, 
The first two were easy. They came through relationships. So Aaron, who is our partner in the Denver area, is a relationship we've had for five or six years. And we happened to find ourselves in a meeting with him that we had set up. And it was sort of one of those things where one person said something, another person said something else, and we all kind of looked at each other like, Did someone just say that? And next thing you know, we're talking about working <laughs> together. And it was, one, see, it was one of those type of deals. And then the, the second expansion, which took place later now, Aaron, well, let me back up, because what happened in, in, in Denver is we started producing so many leads, and Aaron is a phenomenal salesperson. He started converting at such a high rate that we just had more deals than he could possibly handle. And so the team leader of that Keller Williams Market Center in Cherry Creek went out and said, hey, listen, there's another, here's a newer agent in our office. He doesn't have a lot of experience, but with some coaching, he could be really good. I think he might be a good fit for your team. And so he was. And so he sort of started as like a showing assistant for Aaron and sort of worked his way up from there. So that, those were really our first two agents outside of Arizona. And then Fred mentioned in Nashville. So Stephanie is the name of the agent there. And now she worked with us for a number of years here in Phoenix. In fact, she was our lead listing agent also for a few years. And so she knew our system and she had moved to Nashville and had expressed an interest in getting back into to real estate. And, you know, we had been doing things at that point for about six or seven months in, uh, in Denver. It was going well and we felt good about it. And we feel good about her. It's not like we ever wanted her to not be on our team. And so we just said, why not? Let's do this together. And so that was our that was our expansion into Nashville. So they were both relationships. And for the next few months, what happened is Fred and I continued to make trips to both Denver and Nashville to work to recruit people. Now, recruiting people to the company is really my main focus. That's what I've spent the greater part of the last 15 months doing, both on the administrative side and on, and on the sales side. And so the way I would do that, I'd find this leads. Uh, we use a, a system called ZipRecruiter. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but that's just one of those. It's kind of like a list hub for jobs. I mean, you can post your job on ZipRecruiter, and it goes out to, I don't know, 100-plus different, different websites. And so we started to post jobs in Denver and Nashville. And what I would do is I would just call and I would make relationships with the local Keller Williams Market Center and say, hey, listen, I'm going to generate some leads here for people who are interested in my team, and some of them may or may not be a fit. What I'd like to do is I'd like to send I'd like to send them all your way, whether I want to meet with them or not, and have you sort of screen them for me. And maybe they'll be a fit for you. Maybe they'll be a fit for me. Can we work together on that? And so that's what I did. Is I really started setting up appointments for these team leaders. And what I found is they were reciprocating because I was helping them build their business. They started helping us build our business, and they started sending us. Not only were they screening people for us but they started sending us leads and referrals as well for agents who might be a good fit for the team. And so we kind of, we sort of went that route for quite a while. And what happened is truthfully in Nashville, we started to hit a stumbling block. We, we had a really hard time recruiting and we started to go into Las Vegas because of a relationship. We know the owner or what we call the operating partner of the Keller Williams office there that we first launched out of. And so she was really on board with helping us get started and introducing us to people. And we started to go down the same path and we just sort of had epiphany, which is why are we hiring the agents? Why aren't we hiring the person to hire the agents? And so we really started to look at our organization and started to regionalize it. And so what we did in Nevada, we actually ended up hiring what we call our first regional director, meaning this is the guy who's going to go out and hire all the salespeople. And so we reached out to 
our network because we've got a decent network in the Las Vegas area and started talking to a few people. And, and lo and behold, there was a gentleman there who we've known for a number of years. His name's Todd Barton. Talked to him about the opportunity, asking him who he knew that would be a potential fit for us. And lo and behold, he was. And so we ended up getting in business together about a month later. And so Todd, Todd is tasked now with building the team in Vegas. So Fred mentioned there's the seven active uh, agents in Vegas. Todd has hired all seven of them. Now, one of them we had some, we helped some with because he was part of our network as well. And we had, we had already started talking to you before we hired Todd because we thought he would be a good person to be in good business with. We, we've known him for a number of years and Todd ended up hiring him and putting him on his team and making him what we call a team leader in our organizational structure. And so we went, huh, that was easy. That, that makes more sense. And right around the same time, we had turned over the sales team in Phoenix to a gentleman on our team who had really earned the right to, to become the sales team manager here in Phoenix. And he has, you know, he had actually started helping me hire the agents probably last summer sometime around August or so. He, he, made, it, he made it known. He wanted to have a say-so in who we hired because he wanted to help build the company and, and make sure the culture stayed the way it was. And so he wanted to have a say-so in that. So he had started helping me hire people and become part of the process. And eventually we promoted him in the fourth quarter of last year. And he took over the Phoenix sales staff. And he's actually the person that then went out and hired folks in Tucson and has hired the folks that are going to be starting in Glendale as well. And so we've, we've regionalized. We've since hired a regional manager in the middle Tennessee area in Nashville by the name of Hope. And she is in charge of hiring all of the team members there. Aaron, who was our first partner there in Denver, has also taken on hiring responsibilities. He kind of got forced into that early before everybody else, though, just by the nature of the amount of business we all generated together. And so Aaron, same thing, has, has been responsible for hiring all the agents in Denver to this point. Uh, you know, we helped a little bit early on, but he really took that over as well as Colorado Springs. He drove the expansion into Colorado Springs as well and has done that hiring. So now at this point, we are doing our hiring through our, our different regional managers and team leaders in different cities. They're actually doing the hiring. We do help generate leads through ZipRecruiter. We run some Facebook ads and we we work our sphere of influence. And I, I still very much, my main objective every day is who can I hire? Who can I recruit talent-wise to our organization, whether they be sales agent in a, any city that we operate in or we don't operate in yet? And or are they an administrative talent that we could use here in the hub? That's pretty much what I wake up and do every day. And that's all I've, that's all I've done for the last 15 or 16 months is, is work on that. And, you know, leveraging the folks on the ground in different cities has really been the key. I think Fred mentioned we've already hired over 20 people this year. No way could Fred and I have done that on our, no way could I have been the point person to hire 20 people. But when, you, when you're spreading that out over four other people that you're just sort of assisting, it starts to make that possible. And so growth now is becoming, it's not easy by any means. It's not, it's a struggle every day. It's a fight every single day. It's a grind, just like going out and finding new listings and new buyers. But it's certainly become more and more manageable. And the momentum has gained to where we've been able to add over 20 agents here in the first 70 days of the year. You're adding a lot of folks in there. You must have some type of criteria that you're using when you're going out to find these sales agents. What is it? What are you looking for when you hire a sales agent? Well, if I can be totally frank with you, a license is number one, right? Got to have a pulse too. Just kidding. 
Um, you really do have to have a pulse, though. So outside of that, I mean, we're, we are, of course, big subscribers to the Keller Williams Recruit Select Method. When it comes to salespeople, we vary, though, a little bit. We are looking for drivers. We get a disc assessment on every single person. I probably look at, no kidding, two to ten discs per day, whether there's somebody from my organization or not. Uh, that is something I do every day. And then we've got an interview process that we go through, and we're looking really, we really are looking for a few key things. One of those is, this may sound really silly, but can they can they follow a system, or are they willing to follow a system? Because as you know, you've you've interviewed enough, you certainly interviewed enough agents in your time, and a lot of people like to do things their way, right? They they really do, and so we want to know is can they follow our way of doing business? We do not believe that our way of doing business is the only way to do it, but we believe that it's successful and we know that it works. So we want to know, are they willing to, to follow our lead there? We want to know, are they the person who has drive? Meaning, do they want to get up and go? Do they have goals? That's great. But do they have the drive to get up every day and, and make that work? What, have they overcome challenges in their life? Do they have a desire for more? Not that we only hire people who want to be more, who want to be managers and progress. That's great because you need both of those people. You need those people and people who are satisfied in being a sales agent and making a hundred thousand dollars a year for the rest of their life. All of that is is great, but we want to know people can they are they good are they good people? Would they mix well with the culture? And we're looking to just see do they fit in from there? And are they willing to do the tasks tasks every day? We've got a stringent schedule. Every day, no matter what city we're in, at 8.30 in the morning, our teams are practicing scripts and doing role play. That's what happens every day. And then at 9 o'clock, it's time to go lead generate. It's time to call people you don't know yet. So canceled, expired, FISBOs, internet leads that came in overnight, you name it. It's time to get on the phone and generate business. And they've got to be willing to do that. They've got to be willing to, to surrender to that process. And if they are and they're a good person, there's probably room for them on our team. You know, a lot of people like to only hire what they call the, you know, you heard the term empire builders or, or leaders, and, and that's great. We want all the leaders we can get. But what we're really more interested in is what are your goals and can we help you get there and can you follow our system? And if the answers are yes, then there's probably a spot for you on our team. Now, Kevin, you mentioned there's a daily schedule that you want your folks to go through. You mentioned the first two, the scripts for at 8.30 and at 9 o'clock they start lead gen. How long do they do the lead gen and, and what else do you have scheduled out for them during the day? To be truthful, that's the only thing we schedule out. We know that if you do those two things and you control the first half of your day, the rest of it takes care of itself because you're going to have appointments with list, for listings, you'll have appointments with buyers, or you'll have showings, your contracts to negotiate. So that's all we ask them to schedule. That schedule looks like 8.30 to 9, scripts and role play. From 9 to 11, is to it's time to go generate new leads. And then from 11 o'clock to 12, and sometimes it takes more than from 11 to 12, it's time to follow up on leads. And so that's our schedule every day. I have a saying that, that the world starts at 11.01. And that's because at 11.01, it's okay to follow up on leads at that point. Before then... It's time to generate leads. Gary Keller has a saying, never let your current business get in the way of new business. And uh, we believe in that. Never let your current business get in the way of new business. And so every day, it's time to get to work. Because if you do that, every single day, this business becomes very predictable and handsomely rewarded monetarily. 
You mentioned you use the DISC test. What do you want to see come out of the DISC test for a good sales agent? Your ideal sales agent is going to have a profile of a high D or high I. I will say, though, that's, that's not all we're looking for. I can tell you, as somebody for the last year who has looked at two to ten discs, disc assessments every day, I, I can tell you there's not very many high Ds in this world. Sometimes those of us in real estate, especially high achievers, tend to think everyone's a high D because we're sort of concentrated here in the real estate industry. Truth of the matter is it's probably 5% or less of the population is a high D. And so while I would love to have an army of high Ds, the truth of the matter is there's just not that many of us on the planet. And so I'm just looking to see who they are. It's not about do they, do they meet a certain qualification because I can take a high S or a high, high S, high I or high I, high C who is absolutely driven and knows what they want in life and they can be a fantastic agent. I've seen those people make $100,000 a year plus in our system. In fact, we have a, an agent on our team here in Tempe. She's all I and S. That is it. And you can see it coming. She made like $165,000 last year, $170,000 in commission because she is absolutely 100% certain on what her purpose is and she knows what to do and she's quite honestly just a great real estate agent. And so it doesn't matter to me if you're a high D or high I. Do I want to see those? Yes, those are preferable. By no means would I ever disqualify somebody because they weren't a high D. Kevin, while we're on it, what do you score on the DISC test? All D and I. Uh, they're both at a 99. They're both at 99 and almost no S and no C. And Fred, what are you on the DISC test? My DISC comes back in a very funny manner. It says I'm a high D, I with maybe some C, but... The reality is I don't have nearly as much eyes as every time I complete the disc. So I'd be more like a DC or a DIC. How have you structured your compensation for your sales agents? I think I would start by telling you how we've structured our, our model and then, and then kind of how that relates into our, our structure for compensation. So, you know, Kevin and I have this firm belief that everybody in real estate should have a job. I actually believe in any business you're going to be in, you, you, should, uh, you would benefit from waking up every day and putting on a, a hat that says, hey, I got to go to my job today. And I know that kind of sounds to a lot of real estate agents, some who might be listening, that sounds like, oh, it's exactly why I, you know, got into the business is I didn't want to have a job. I didn't want to have a boss. I didn't want to have to be there at a certain time. I wanted to be able to take vacations when I wanted. And of course, I wanted to be able to make six plus figures of income. But the reality is what, what I found and what Kevin and I both found from teaching other real estate agents is that you benefit from actually putting on, you know, a, a set of sunglasses or the putting on your job hat every day and going to work and saying, all right, it's time to time to roll up my sleeves and go to work. And so for us, every single person in our organization has a job and that includes Kevin and I. And so the job of a, of a sales agent in our organization is, is three simple things. We want them to be in communication with their sphere of influence. We want them to be doing um, some manner of prospecting. And then thirdly, we'd like them to be working open houses. And so, you know, listen, if you're listening to this right now, you might be going, well, why do I need to join a team to do those three things? And I always kind of chuckle and laugh when people ask that because the reality is you don't need a team to do those three things. But what, what we find on our team is that, you know, people find it easier to do their job. They find more success. There's more systems. There's more support. There's more opportunity to do your job inside of our organization than without us. So our model for every sales agent is we want you to talk to the people that you know, your sphere. We want you to talk to some people you don't know, some form of prospecting. And then we want you to hold some open houses. And the open houses is because it's the one thing in our business where we can meet people face-to-face -face and show off our product. Uh, being that we're 
in the real estate sales business, we can't pick our product up, put it in a bag and, you know, fly it on an airplane across the country or drive it to the corner and show it off for people. We actually have to drive people to our product to show it to them. So our sales model is built on those three things. And as a team, um, we put a lot of energy, we put a lot of juice, if you will, behind those three things. We make it easy for our sales agents to communicate to their sphere. We, uh, we hold client appreciation events four times a year. Kevin and I pay for those events. We invite all the people and our team members and their spheres to those events. We send out the invitations on their behalf. We also send out two emails every single month, a just listed, just sold email, and also a monthly newsletter. And those emails come from our sales agents and they go out to their spheres. But the great news is our sales agents don't have to think about those things. They just happen on their behalf. Our administrative team takes care of that. And then from a prospecting standpoint, we practice our scripts and dialogues every single day from 830 to 9, as Kevin mentioned, and we prospect what to say to canceled and canceled and expired sellers, what to say to FISBOs, what to say to sign calls, what to say to an internet lead, what to say when door knocking, what to say when holding an open house. So we practice our scripts and dialogues, and then we also provide a lot of technology like a phone dialer to make prospecting easier, to be able to call more people in a shorter amount of time, make more connections, and ultimately make more money. And then for open houses, we've got a pretty comprehensive open house program that our administrative support and staff uses. And so those are the three functions that we ask all of our sales agents to do. And then Kevin and I, from a business standpoint, we also bring a lot to the table. And our business is mainly internet and referrals. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit that, uh, more about that in an upcoming spot here. But um, our whole goal is to produce enough other leads for our sales agents where if they're doing their job, their sphere, they're prospecting their open houses, they should conceivably be closing one or two deals a month from doing those efforts. And then all the leads and all the money and all the lead generation that we're doing, uh, bringing to the table, they follow up with those leads, they talk to those people, they hold appointments. We want them to be closing one or two deals from that side. So kind of a combined effort, if you will. Kevin and I look at our job as producing great leads for our agents and teaching them how to convert them and set appointments. And then we ask our agents to do some work. And when you put those two together, you sort of end up with this synergistic team. Uh, a lot of teams are, are kind of built on this idea of it's either like a dependent model or an independent model. And in a dependent model, the sales agent or the agent on the team, they just depend on their teammate their rainmaker, their team leader to produce all the business. So they wake up every day, they show up at the office and they sit there and wait for somebody to give them a lead. And they love the people that, you know, they work with when they have a lot of leads and they resent the people that they work with when they don't have a lot. And then there's the opposite team. There's some independent teams out there where you show up every day and really you're not given a lot of support. There's not a lot of value. There's a lot of talk of value. There's a lot of, you know, oh, we'll help you with this and this, but ultimately there's not much there being done by the team. It's mostly the agent doing all the work. And so our model, as I just got done explaining, is what we like to call an interdependent model. So it's got some interdependency on each other. We do some work, they do some work, and together everybody's a little bit happier. So I like to say that we teach people how to fish, and then we also give fish to people. You know, if you just give fish to people, they become dependent upon you, and, and they get mad when their stomach's a little hungry and growling at them. And if you only teach them how to fish, they eventually turn resentful because you're not producing anything for them other than the skill of teaching them how to fish, and eventually they walk away and leave you. So our goal is to not only teach people how to fish, but it's also to give them some fish. 
So that's how I would kind of start out by answering your compensation question is just by telling you that's the foundation and the basis of our model. The other thing that's really apparent in our model and kind of how we do things is that we try to work in our strength zones. And when I say strength zones, what I mean is that we want administrative people doing as many administrative duties and tasks as they can. And then we want our sales agents doing as many sales tasks as they can. So salespeople are really great following up with leads. They're kind of hunters, if you will, that like to go out and kill the thing and then bring it back. And so our administrative people are the ones that kind of cook the meal, so to speak. Just a great analogy that our administrative team likes to use. So we want the hunters to go out and, and kill the thing and bring it back in. And then we want the administrative team to prepare the meal and make sure it's all right and it tastes good and that the experience on the backside works really well. And so, you know, our sales agents don't put lockboxes on houses. They don't take pictures. They don't enter things in the multiple listing service. They probably don't even know how to enter a listing in the multiple listing service. You know, I'm kind of joking when I say that, but some of them don't because we take anything away from them that's administrative in nature and we, we take it off their plate because our opinion is that they'd rather be out doing something else and their skill set is better served to do something else. And so administratively, we try to handle as much of the process as possible, uh, you know, all the details and all the execution. And we let the sales agents go out and do what they really love and why they really got into real estate. This is kind of a side note, and I will get to the compensation answer, but, you know, I kind of laugh at the real estate industry as a whole because somewhere along the lines, the real estate industry has had this thought process that an agent is supposed to do everything. And what I mean by everything is they're supposed to be really good at marketing. They're supposed to be great at building websites and putting business cards together. They're supposed to be good at scripts and dialogues. They're supposed to be good at lead generation. They're supposed to be good at lead follow-up. They're supposed to know how to generate an internet lead. They're supposed to be great at marketing and put together nice marketing brochures. They're supposed to go out and make great presentations to people. Then they're supposed to be like, you know, just extremely skilled in details. They're supposed to know how to enter things in the MLS, write great property descriptions. They're supposed to be able to communicate well with their clients. They're supposed to be good at not only, you know, going out and getting the business, but also executing on it. And it's kind of a backwards concept when you think about it, because we're one of the only industries that still thinks that way. As an example, look at the mortgage industry. The guy that goes out and takes the loan application is not the guy that is actually the one that is processing it, who's underwriting it, who's sending it to closing, who's funding the loan, who's doing the post-closing tasks. So even in the mortgage business, which is very in line with our business, they've got people that are in their strength zones. But for some reason in the real estate industry, just for whatever reason over time, it's kind of always bought into the idea that one person is supposed to be good at everything. And I think that's why as a whole, many people look down on our industries because they either get let down at the sales process or they get let down in the administrative process. So our team is just designed to provide a highly specific set of skills to the client that's delivered by people with those skills. So it's just matching people up with their strength zones. So from a compensation standpoint, our agents uh, roughly on a, on a listing transaction, they make roughly about 25, maybe up to about 30% of the gross commission income. And then on the buyer side transaction, they make on average about 45 to 50% of the gross commission income. And so sometimes when people hear those numbers, they go, oh my gosh, like it's only that amount. 
But the reality is if you if you work inside of our system and experience it, our sales agents don't spend any money. They don't have to spend money on marketing. They don't spend money on their business cards. They don't spend money on desks. They get trained. They have scripts and dialogues. And so what we found is that they're able to do a lot of transactions because we take the menial work off of them that they would normally get drowned in. And so agents on our team are closing three, four deals a month, making on average, let's say about $2,000 a transaction. And so when you start doing those numbers, guys that are average are making sixty-five, $75,000 a year. And then guys that are above average are touching one fifty dollars and sometimes up to $200,000 in what I would basically call net income. And the reason I call it net income is because outside of paying to have their real estate license active and putting some gas in their car and having a cell phone and computer, everything else is paid for on their behalf. On the idea of expansion, you've moved into multiple states and multiple markets. Do you have a goal for how big you want to expand your team? Yeah, we do. We've, we've got a stated goal, in fact, and, and our goal is to have over 500 real estate agents in our organization uh, as our long-term goal. What time frame are you giving yourself to achieve that? To be honest, there, there's not. My assumption is that's going to take somewhere around 10 to 12 years. I don't know if it'll take that long. I don't know if it'll go that quick. But the reality of it is, is 500 is came up with that number because it just seems ridiculous and, and out there. And there's one thing we know that we've been taught uh, over and over again by, by our mentor, Gary Keller, is think bigger, think bigger, think bigger. And for us, 500 is big. You know, we thought 100 was big. A good friend of mine challenged me on that about a year ago. He said, what do you mean 100? Why isn't it 500? And I just, I thought about it. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. Why isn't it 500? And so Fred and I have adopted that 500 number for, for now. And that number may get bigger. But I'll tell you one, one of the cool things about that number is it's forced us to think bigger in all things that we do. So when we're implementing new systems and strategies in the business, we, we use that as a filter. And so when, it's, when someone has an idea or even we have an idea and there's something to do, we say, great, that works today, but does that work with 500 or more agents? And it's simple. If the answer is no, then it's back to the drawing board. We can't do it like that. The expansion market appears to be a gold rush opportunity right now. There's not a lot of teams that have started to do it. You've jumped in with both feet. Is that the way you see it, that it's a, it's a limited opportunity and that you want to get out there as quickly as you can? No, I don't. You know, truthfully, I don't see it as a limited opportunity. I do think we, we are the benefactors of being early, which also means we also probably are taking the loss of being early, too. So I know that we're... You know, we get to we get to talk to some of the other top agents with at least within Keller Williams, who are expanding quite a bit as well, and so we're certainly taking our lumps. But I truthfully believe we're the, we are the benefit. There is some benefactor to that as well to being one of the first ones out there in the in the gold rush, if you will, of it. I don't think it's it's limited. I think it's actually only limited by the fact that there's just not enough people in our industry that have systems and administrative processes that are expandable. And so to be truthful, I don't know that we're going to see the majority, you know, as you saw in the industry go from the solo agent to the teams. And, you know, it seemed like everybody had a team after a while. I don't think that many that percentage will go to expansion. I think it's going to be limited to a few. I think what you might see is you see, you're going to see some smaller expansion meaning uh, you take a really good agent who expands into one or two other markets, maybe close by their area or not. 
you'll probably see a lot of that. Then my guess is what will happen is there'll be a few of them who are shooting for what we're shooting for, which is, you know, over 500 sales associates in, in our company. And so I think, I think there's going to be a, a little bit of a limit to that. So, but I think to your question about being early, I think there's some benefit to that. And I think there's also, I think we're taking some lumps because of that too. We're, we're dealing with issues we never thought we'd have to deal with, with different, just different aspects like the laws and rules and MLSs and communication and systems and things like that. It's really exposing the things that we've got to get better at. You mentioned that your original purpose for expansion was to raise your average price. Have you succeeded at that? Has your average price gone up? Yeah, you know, it's funny because we did so many deals in Denver last year. Our overall average was just over 200000 but that's because our average for the 100-plus deals we did in Denver was two seventy-five, And so that certainly brought it up. And, and we believe the more we expand, the more that should go up as well. And so that, that should continue to go up. Now, that's going to require some a few more strategic markets where the average prices are north of 300 but yeah, it's, it has gone up, and, uh, and we believe it'll continue to go up. There's going to be people listening who are going to hear your concept of expansion. That you're expanding wide. You're going across a, a wide area, geographic area. And they're going to be asking the question, geez, you guys are sitting there in Phoenix with 5 million people. It's a really big market. Why didn't you go deep into Phoenix and say have 10 or 20 offices in Phoenix and really go deep. Why did you decide to expand across the country? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. My response to that would be, um, that's exactly where I initially went and where I was kind of turned off by expansion. But the more I researched expansion, the more I understood it. You see not only real estate businesses and mortgage companies that do the exact same thing, but you go into other industries and you look at Starbucks, for an example. I mean, Starbucks uh, probably could have stayed in Seattle, Washington and sold more cups of coffee by just going deep. But instead, they decided to go wide. And a lot of that has to do with just kind of the low-hanging fruit theory, if you will. I'm not even sure if that's a theory, but it's obviously a picture that we all have, have kind of considered, which is, you know, there are certain lead generation activities we're all good at and comfortable with that we know if we do a certain thing in a certain area, it's going to produce us so much business. But trying to double whatever that lead generation activity is doesn't necessarily mean that we're just going to get twice the amount of business. I could use the example of like a radio campaign. You might spend, let's just say, $10,000 a month on a radio campaign and know that because of that spend, you're going to bring in, let's say, eight listings a month. I'm just making up the number, right? But just because you go to $20,000 on that one radio station doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to double the number of listings you can take to 16. And, and so there's, there's different things in our business that we just recognize that if we do those across a wide area that we can pick up what we would call some quicker business, meaning that it was easier for us to go from zero transactions to 100 in Denver than it's going to be this year in Phoenix to go from roughly 250 or so transactions last year all the way up to 350 or 400 transactions this year. Sometimes taking that bigger market share actually takes more energy, more inertia than it does just to go into another area and kind of pick up the low-hanging fruit, if that makes sense. You have a codependent model where generating leads as well as your sales agents are generating their own leads. Talking about the side of that spectrum where you're generating the leads, you have internet leads. What are you doing to generate internet leads? 
You know, the internet's kind of a, a wide a wide range of things, right? And so early on when we did a lot of short sales back in the day, um, our internet strategy was mostly based on videos and blogging. And so we did a lot of video blogging and produced a lot of short sale sellers who were researching how to do a short sale or researching Bank of America short sales or something to that example. In this day and age, most of our internet strategy is is more in what I would call three different arenas. So one is um, we operate and use uh, the CRM, the uh, the real estate tool called Boomtown. Boomtown is a system that we've actually only been on for about 18 months, but it's one of those things that if we could turn back the clock and have had Boomtown three, four years ago, man, we sure do kind of you know shake our heads and wonder why we didn't get it sooner. It has been an absolute game changer for our business from the back-end technology to the front-end lead generation. And so um, one of the areas that we generate uh, real estate leads is, is through Boomtown pay-per-click. And the reality is that you can you can run pay-per-click to any IDX website. And so sometimes people think, you know, Boomtown's not necessarily the greatest system because I could go do that to any IDX. And there's some truth to that. But one of the benefits of the Boomtown system is that it has such a great back-end follow-up system um, that the leads that we generate into their system, we tend to convert it higher than we would in other systems because of the great tools and bells and whistles, if you will, on the back end. So one of our internet strategies is pay-per-click that we do to Boomtown. And that pay-per-click spans Facebook. We do some on Instagram. Uh, we do some on uh, uh, through Google AdWords and things like that. And we actually, um, Kevin and I, you know, as much as we could, and we, we know how to do some of those things as far as internet legion, um, we just pay the people that are good at it. So we actually just pay Boomtown. They generate all those leads. We give them a budget, and then we, we let them kind of go to town and generate those leads for us. So that's one area on the internet. The other pay-per-click area on the internet is, is that Kevin and I had uh, had kind of this moment a couple years ago, it's about two, almost two and a half years ago now, where we were just asking ourselves, how do we generate more seller leads on the internet? Because oftentimes, um, you know, we, we find most leads on the internet tend to be buyer leads. And so we did some, I don't really know how else to put it other than, you know, we learned kind of the hard way and uh, not too sure that necessarily we have it have it down to science just yet, but we've done some what I would call proprietary pay-per-click uh, testing now for about two and a half years on you know how to generate more seller leads on the internet. And I wish I could teach it and train it to other people, but the truth of the matter is we hired a company, and over time we've we've gotten better and better results. But so we do some some proprietary pay-per-click stuff for sellers on the internet. And then the third place that we pick up a lot of internet leads is that we buy internet leads from, we call them internet lead distributors or bulk lead distributors. And what I mean by that is there are companies out there, and I'll give one example, ZBuyer as an example. There are companies out there that generate leads on the internet, and then they turn around and they sell them to agents and or investors. And so those leads tend to be a pretty low cost per lead. Most people tend to view those leads as low quality, but the way that we handle our follow-up, and you kind of heard in 2013 that, you know, we really shifted our mindset on follow-up. We've found that we're able to convert the Z buyer leads and things of that nature at about the same percentage that we're able to convert our Boomtown leads. So basically just, uh, you know, those are our three main areas that we generate internet leads, the Boomtown stuff, some of the proprietary uh, seller pay-per-click, and then the what we call bulk lead distributors, where we actually just buy leads from companies that do all the lead generation on the internet. And as you mentioned, follow-up is the key with these leads, especially the internet leads. Could you give us a quick description of what you're doing to follow up with your internet leads? 
biggest thing I would say, and if you could get this picture in your mind, is that you've got to understand that an internet lead is capturing somebody at the earliest possible point in time that they're thinking about buying or selling a house meaning that they might just kind of be wondering what their house is worth because they're maybe thinking about selling it in three or four years when their kids graduate college or their kids graduate high school and leave the house. Or they might just kind of be thinking about moving across the country to Phoenix. So they get online and they start looking at what home prices are in Phoenix. So a lot of people would discount a lead that's two, three, or four years out from doing something as a quote unquote bad lead or low quality. But our follow-up system is, is such that, you know, we just kind of believe that you're either going to buy, sell, die, or file a restraining order against us before you're, you know, before we're done with you. And that's kind of our mentality. And I know that sounds funny and some people are out there shaking their heads, but if you put that mentality on it, you know what, I'm just, I'm willing to stay in front of you for as long as I have to, to you buy or sell a house, providing that we're having some sort of decent conversation and dialogue, or you're actively on my website. Um, you'll be amazed at what you do. So I'll kind of walk you through what our lead follow-up process looks like. And and the way I'm going to explain it is assume that somebody is not responding to me because that's the easiest way for me to kind of walk you through how intense it could look. So let's just say somebody registers on our Boomtown website today and decides that they want to start looking at homes. That lead is going to get assigned to one of our agents and they're going to get notified by text and email that they have a new lead. And ideally, they're going to reach out within seven to 10 minutes. Now, that's an ideal. Does it happen every time? No, absolutely not. But if we can get to those leads as fast as possible, we know that our chance for converting them is going to be much greater. And so we're going to reach out to them by phone. If we don't reach them on the first call, we're going to hang up. We're going to call back about 30 seconds later. If we don't reach them on, on that one, we're going to hang up again call back about 30 seconds later. And if on the third call, they don't pick up yet. We'll just go ahead and leave them a message and then we'll shoot them a quick text message and send them a really short email with our contact info. And so that's what our lead follow-up would look like on day one. And so then what we do is, is a good friend of ours, Ben Kinney, has something that he calls the 10 days of pain. And that's not exactly what our lead follow-up looks like, but if you can kind of imagine this system of follow-up where you're just very intense for the first seven or 10 days, that's very much what we do. So basically every single day for the next week, I'm going to call and either leave a message, send a text, or send an email every single day for up to seven days in a row. If the person doesn't respond to me, then I'm going to move them into more of a weekly follow-up. And I'm going to follow up with them once a week with a call, text, or email for roughly a month or so. And if they still don't follow up with me, I'm going to call, text, or email once a month for three months. And if after three months or so, they're still not getting back to me, I'm going to move them into more of my quarterly follow-up system where I'm calling, texting, or emailing on a quarterly basis. Now, if you legitimately had to follow up with somebody and do all that follow-up that I just described, let's say over an 18 or 24-month period of time, yes, it does add up to be a lot of calls, texts, and emails, but the reality is, is that when we've looked at all the leads that we have converted, we've found that, man, most of those people, we're talking or reaching out to them 15 or 20 times before we ever convert them. We're sharing tons of text messages back and forth or sending lots of emails to them. So we've just, we've just kind of come to understand that, you know, it's going to take more intense follow-up than most of us want to do. But if you're willing to do the follow-up, you know, the results can be there. And the other thing that, that I would kind of say on, on lead follow-up is that, you know, you got to get over the fact that 
people don't pick up the phone all the time, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're mad at you or they don't want to talk to you or they'll never do business with you. Kevin tells the story all the time about how in 2015, he listed and sold about 20 houses last year, and he wasn't even prospecting or calling on new business. He was literally just receiving callbacks and emails and text messages from people that he had, quote unquote, been stalking for since 2013-14 or even late 2012. And so if you're willing to just stay in touch, you'd be surprised. People will pick up the phone and they'll call you and, you know, Kevin, I'm so sorry. Fred, I'm so sorry. I haven't called you sooner, you know, and they're literally apologizing to you because they've been getting your text calls and emails and they so appreciate your follow-up. You know, and the reality is one in 20 people might get mad at you, but, you know, who cares if five or 10% of the population is mad at you? If that's what's going to differentiate you and help you to close more business, then it's just one of those things that we're willing to do. Last thing I'd say about follow-up is those calls sound kind of intense, but when you're using tools like Boomtown or you're using uh, like a phone dialer, which we use in conjunction with Boomtown, you're able to put a large number of leads in, a, in the Mojo dialer system or in a power dialer, if you will, and you can get through 100 calls or so to people that haven't talked to you in a matter of a half an hour or less, depending upon whether or not they pick up the phone, and you can drop the same message on all of their voicemails. So there's a lot of technology and tools we also use to be able to keep up that type an intense follow-up. Another part of your business that's really big as far as lead gen is referrals. And you break referrals into three different types. You've got single agent referral, referral companies, and referral partners. Could you define the difference between the three for us? Number one is, is going to be from our database. So those are going to look like referrals from our clients, our, our past, past and current clients, our sphere of influence, friends, family, et cetera, our database, right? And so we do a lot to, to nurture that. So we have, a, in fact, tomorrow we have our annual spring training baseball game, our annual baseball game client event. So we're taking a couple hundred people out to a baseball game tomorrow afternoon as one of our ways to kind of give back to our, to our database because that is a large source of our business. And so it's a chance for, not only is it a chance for us to connect with our database, it's one of the values that we bring to our agents on our, in our staff. So well, one of the things we do is we require that agents, when they join our team, that they're bringing in at least 100 names of their sphere of influence to put it into the database so we can help them generate business from that. And it's, it's one, of the, one of the few times a year where we have a chance to call our database, call our sphere, call our clients and say, hey, listen, my company, the real estate team is doing our, our, our yearly event, our baseball game, and we'd love to have you come out just as a thank you for supporting our business. And we get reciprocated with, with repeat business and referrals, and it's wonderful. It helps us grow our agent's business. Of course, all the folks that Fred and I have helped over the years attend and refer, refer us more business, so it's a great business builder. And so our database is one, our personal sphere of influence, clients, et cetera. The other one that you talked about, referral companies, is something that we've taken advantage of as well. So as an example, if you've ever heard of Dave Ramsey, he's a, he's a talk show host. And he's also, in addition to being a talk show host, he's actually a real estate guy. He's a real estate broker in the state of Tennessee. And his, what, what's little known is his actual largest company is a real estate company. And what he does is he generates leads through his radio show and through his advertising efforts. And he sends those to agents that he's approved through what he calls his endorsed local provider program in exchange for a referral fee. So his, his referral fee is a little bit higher. We pay him 28% on closed transactions, but it's a 
it's a great deal. There's no upfront cost. It's literally just like any other real estate referral you'd get from another agent. You pay a referral fee back to him when the transaction closes. And there's a, there's a handful of other companies out there like that. Agent Machine comes to mind as, as someone else we've also worked with for a number of years. And so we've got that. That's what we call referral companies. And near the bucket is single agent referrals, which Fred alluded to. So invariably, uh, and this is not why we did this. However, it's a benefit. If someone listening to this to this call, this interview, will send us a referral in Denver or Colorado Springs or Phoenix or Tucson or Nashville or Vegas. So we get a lot of real estate agent referrals because they know we work in a certain area. We work in Phoenix. We work in Denver, whatever it happens to be that they've got a client going to. And that's one of the reasons why we teach so much without charging. We give away a ton of content. We are always, you know, we want to make sure we're always at the we're part of Keller Williams and, you know, they put on very large events. Typically their events are, are 15,000 or so real estate agents for their two major events every year. And we're always going to make sure we're building our relationships because agent to agent referrals has, has been a big thing for us. We want it to continue to be. And so between teaching and speaking engagements and going to these different events to network with our friends and agents we don't know yet, those are ways that we generate referrals in the three different kind of referral buckets, if you will, of the referral category. Kevin and Fred, people have been listening to us for a while now. They they understand you have this this very large organization that's spreading out, doing a lot of things. And the question that's going to pop up in their mind is, are you profitable? <laughs> that's a great, you know what? It's funny. That's a great question. The answer is yes. Is it as profitable as either one of us want yet? No. We're investing a lot of money back into people and systems. Not afraid to tell you in the last 12 months, we've, we've hired the two most high-paying, guaranteed salaried people we'd ever had to hire, who, are, by the way, are well worth it. And so we're reinvesting the additional profit we would have made. We are profitable. Uh, our, our target is to get closer to 25 to 30% over time as we scale. And uh, I'll definitely tell you we're not there yet, but that is our target and what we go after. We're very... We're, we're fortunate. Our coach, our real estate coach is a numbers guy. He is a profit and loss guy. I can remember our very first handful of phone calls with him in 2010. We didn't get to talk about anything except for P&Ls. And so it's, to this day, he gets a copy of our P&L the same day we get it. He sees all of our numbers and those are conversations we have. And Fred and I are very diligent in watching our expenses, making sure we're not paying too much for leads or deals or, you know, monitoring how much it costs us to service a deal, service a lead, because those are all things that affect the bottom line. And we're not in this business just to do business and to, to, for recognition or anything like that. We're definitely in it to, to make a large amount of money over time. And we're well aware of that and watch those dollars and cents because we know plenty of people who, who get to be on stage who, who don't make money. And that, that's not, it's just not why we're in the business. You mentioned that you have a target of 25 to 30%. You're not quite there yet. Would you mind telling us where you've been during this, this rapid expansion period? I'm more than happy to share that with you. And it's because it's changed as we've expanded more and more. We've certainly seen the percentages go down. Uh, like I said, investing in, in more people over the years, and that has been something that, uh, that we've had to come to grips with. But last year, and I'm looking for the exact number here in front of me, we were just under 18% last year. And that's, that's down from where we've been well over 40% in the years past. A little more leveraged in, in like in 2012 when we were a lot more leveraged and not even in the state. We were closer to 
our, our target though is to really get it to 25 and manage it to 25. And that includes the investment. So we wrote some big checks last year and early this year, but we're still going, how, what do we have to do to get it to 25%? Every, every single month, we're looking at the numbers going, what can we change? Where can we get more efficient? Where can we spend less and get the same output? Those are, that's our target for this year is 25, even though we were uh, closer to 18 last year. Well, that's pretty good, 18%. And you're, again, doing this massive, rapid expansion with the goal to get up to 500 agents into your system. That's actually pretty impressive that you're able to maintain a profit at all. So you are monitoring the figures. You mentioned your coach and a P&L. Who are you using as your coach? We're very fortunate. We have a gentleman by the name of Glenn Neely. He is part of the MAP organization. Through the Keller, that's the Keller Williams Coaching Company. You know, we met him in 2010 and man, that man has changed our world. He has been such a vital part of our business. Never afraid to have a hard conversation. And it's, it's never been, Hey, did you make phone calls this week? It's never been that it's, it's almost been exclusively business conversations, profit and loss conversations, hard conversations about, did you have that conversation? Did you do this? This is, you know, more strategic stuff. And we have just been fortunate. I think I feel like, we have the best coach on the planet. I think we're so lucky. How often do you review your P&Ls? The P&L is at least once a month, but we actually have a weekly expense review set up on our calendar with myself, Fred, and our head of operations. And so the three of us get together and review our expenses for the week and for the previous week and for the month to date. And just to make sure there's nothing out of whack there. One of the tricks that we were taught by Gary Keller is to literally look for an error. Not, not like we're trying to find something that someone screwed up or, you know, we're looking for people's mess ups or anything like that, but just a trick for looking at those numbers because it can get tedious is to look for errors, make it a habit to look for errors rather than just look at the numbers. And so we've just taken that on and weekly we have an expense review. And then once a month, Fred and I sit down and look at the books. And usually at least one of our coaching calls every month, there's going to be a conversation as well about the book. So we're at least having two calls two conversations, I should say, about the actual P&L. Kevin, what drives you? At the end of the day, I think what drives me, part of it is I've got an incredibly large chip on my shoulder, if I can be frank with you. It's probably why I wear flip-flops and shorts as often as I can. I wear flip-flops every day. It doesn't matter. I'm sort of, I hate to say anti-establishment, but I'm going to do things my way. And if it doesn't fit in your world, I'm totally okay with that. I'm just going to go do it my way. And uh, I think with that, you know, that it's probably has to do with the chip on my shoulder. I've been told I can't do stuff my whole life, and I've always wanted to be the best. I've always had this thing where I want to be the best, and I want everybody to know I'm the best. I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about how great I am or anything like that. But I want everybody to know that what I do, whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's a sport or when I, you know, I think about what my my younger days when I worked for the credit card company and doing, I was kind of like the leader in our department when I started running dialers for, for collection companies or collection departments, I wanted to be the best and I wanted everybody in the building to know that I was the best at what I did. And that really drives me every day. I get up with a chip on my shoulder. And then I think the other piece of that is, is my family. I've got a wife and I've got two small children, uh, two daughters, one, one's a year old and one's three years old. And I would do uh, literally anything for those three. And so being able to provide the type of life for them that I think that they deserve as well as the rest of my family deserves is something that I 
I think about often and it is one of my main drivers. You said that you wear flip-flops and shorts around. Do your agents do the same? <laughs> the agents typically don't. Most of them have better taste in clothing than I do, and they don't look like they uh, went shopping at the uh, at the teenager you know uh, store this weekend like like I do most days. No, they'll typically they typically dress like you'd expect to see most real estate professionals dress. Some of them will be a little more casual when they don't have appointments and, and whatnot. But it's uh, we're definitely uh, an informal informal company. We have a, I, we had another mentor. In our lives, both Fred and I uh, used to say casualness breeds casualties. And there's a, there's a difference between informal and casual. Most people will say the word casual. What they mean is informal, which is, in my case, it looks like flip-flops and shorts or jeans. But we're very on purpose about business and what we do. Fred, what drives you? Different things have driven me at different points in my life. I mean, to go back to like 2007, 2008, I think I was driven by just the desire to have to survive. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say that I had such a big picture and vision for my life as it was, it was mainly survival. And, you know, I would say today, what, what drives me to, to continue to grow a bigger business and a bigger life is just the desire to do something significant. I mean, I wake up every day and unlike Kevin, I, I can actually sleep in until six or six thirty, maybe 7 AM. Uh, I'm not necessarily the kind of guy that's jumping out of bed at 4 a.m. in the morning like my business partner, but on the on the same token, I wake up and like I just instantly want to go to work. I instantly enjoy solving problems and and working on different things and coming up with creative solutions and ideas and doing things that have either never been done before or haven't been done in the way that we might be doing them. And I, I just you know I, I would go back to our mission. Our mission is to produce extraordinary results, influence people, and impact lives. And that could just as very well be a personal mission for me as it is a business mission. If you're going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Well, that's an easy one for me. I, I would say you would uh, wake up every day and act and behave in such a way that you you have a job. You would say, uh, who's my sphere of influence? And how many of them, when they think of real estate, think of me? And uh, you would put something in your calendar and you block time out for two to three hours a day to talk to people that you don't know about real estate, whether that's cold calling or door knocking or holding open houses. I firmly believe that that our sales model of, you know, spending time on your sphere, spending time prospecting, spending time with open houses is something that every real estate agent should do, whether you've been in the business 29 years or whether you've been in the business about 29 minutes. Kevin, how would you advise a new agent? There's so much advice I want to give to, to newer agents. I think Fred's advice is, is dead on. I think one of the, the most important things you can do is learn. And, I, and that's because of my personal kind of the part I didn't tell you is the few months between me getting a license and Fred and I actually kind of formally started to work together. You know, I, I sat in a classroom probably on average three days a week at our, at our, at our Keller Williams office in Phoenix. And I learned and learned as much as I could. I listened to everything the agents in the office who were experienced and doing well was doing. And I took it to heart. I put it into action. And I, I think for me, you got to you got to be learning based. So you've got to be willing to learn. And then the other piece to that though that I think I, I comes by me naturally that may not come to everybody. You got to be willing to go out and do it and fail. You've got to just be you got to be willing to look silly. You got to be willing to to sound stupid on the phone when your first time you make your your phone calls for canceled expireds whatever you do. You got to be willing to fail. 
and you got to be willing to learn. And if you're willing to do those things time and time again and get better every day, then it's going to work out for you. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot we can learn from each other in this community. You know, it's funny. Some agents, you know, don't like to share. I found that most that most of the quote-unquote top agents or at least the agents I've been around are open to sharing what they do and what's helped them make, make them successful. And I think what happens is that's part of the reason why we've taught so much is because when we share, we get so much back. And so I find it valuable both on both ends. Number one, listening to somebody else and what's helped them be successful. But number two, sharing what has helped us along the way and also where we've made mistakes. I, I always feel like that ends up helping us probably if not as much than more than when I get to listen to someone else. Well, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? My one parting shot, I think Fred's advice may be similar. If they're listening to this call, I'm assuming they're listening to to your other calls as well. And that's great. And they're probably, they're learning-based people. One of the things that I always try to do every event I go to or interview I listen to or video I watch, I'm just looking for one thing. I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to go and implement someone's entire business plan, all 10 of their strategies for getting business or anything crazy like that. I'm looking for one thing that I go, you know what, I could go out and do that and I could do that really well. And I'm going to implement that one thing, maybe two. And so that, that would be my advice. It's when you're, when you're learning based and you're listening to calls like this, don't try to do it all. Just go, Hey, great. That's fantastic. There was a lot of good stuff said, maybe some stuff I don't agree with, but there's this one thing right here that's working for him that I think maybe could work for me as well. Yeah, this is Fred. I, my, my final uh, parting advice would uh, would just be that, you know, you, you can't really see Kevin and I right now. You, you've heard from us over the last couple of hours. And uh, at the end of the day, there's one thing you should know about us. It's not that we're special in any way, shape or form. I don't think Kevin or I are any smarter than any other agent that I've ever met before. In fact, I think Kevin and I might be a little slower than most people. But what I do think Kevin and I are quicker at is making mistakes, fixing them quickly, learning from our mistakes, and just moving forward. We just choose to take a lot of actions, and we choose to execute at a very high level. And our, all our execution does not work out 100%, nearly anywhere close to that number. But I just think that, you know, the thing I would say to, to our listeners and people that are tuned in is, uh, you know, be, go out there and be willing to make some mistakes. Go out there and, and be willing to play big and go out there and, and just be willing to, to mess up and get back up again and know that that's really what success looks like. Success just looks like a bunch of people that have, have failed at a high level that figured out what didn't work and then just kept moving forward. And, uh, and then similar to Kevin, my last piece of advice would be don't try to don't try to execute everything you hear. Don't try to implement everything you hear. And also don't be one of those people whose heads is incredibly full of information. But when we look inside of your business, there's very little results or implementation to show. Be an executor. You know, ideas are, are a dime a dozen. A lot of people have great ideas, but it's those that are willing to execute on them and take action that end up making the biggest difference in their lives and the lives of other people. Well, Kevin and Fred, you've had great ideas, taken action, been willing to fail, corrected, and scored big. Twice. Once with short sales and now with expansion teams. Your big, giant, huge, outrageous goal of 500 expansion agents is exciting, motivating, and inspirational. Based on your track record, current trajectory, and big chip on your shoulder, I think the odds are in your favor. 
Thank you for sharing and being our top agents of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 111 homes last year with an average price of $1.2 million. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.